So good evening again, everybody. So uh, I'm here to tell you that I have a problem. And it's a, very, uh, it's a very personal problem. And I'm afraid it's a, a pretty serious problem. And, and it wouldn't be so bad uh, if I was the only one who had this problem. Uh, but I'm afraid uh, you have it too. And my problem uh, is that I can talk, and I can think, and I can understand. And I know who I am, or or I think I know who I am. So that's my problem. And it is is pretty serious. Uh, Because of this problem, I'm basically uh, lonely, pretty much misunderstood, and I'm not too happy. So uh, I try to keep busy to prevent myself from thinking about this too much. Uh, but in the end, uh, I just can't avoid it. Uh, it. It does occur to me that these things are true uh, deep in the back of my mind. And the biggest problem of all, and the problem that probably is the source of all my other problems, is that I'm going to die. Now, uh, my cat doesn't have these problems. (laughs) My cat uh, is not lonely. My cat is not misunderstood. My cat is not unhappy, and my cat is not going to die. Uh, Now, my cat is pretty old, so probably she's going to, at some point, uh, begin to feel poorly, and then maybe she'll have some pain and she'll be pretty stoical with her pain. And then maybe she'll uh, become increasingly weak. And then she'll lie down and go unconscious. And then her bodily functions will all shut down. But she won't die. Because only you and I can die and be unhappy and feel alone and misunderstood because we can talk and we can think, and we can look into one another's faces and feel as if we understand or or don't understand. You and I have, have theories about our lives, about who we think we are, about what we think we want, about what we think is meaningful or not meaningful, And and my cat has no such theories. When I I look into the face of my my cat, 
who, who I, I, I love dearly, and I, and I enjoy looking into her face. It gives, me, it gives me comfort. But it's just not the same as looking into a human face. Uh, the face of my cat doesn't draw me forth in the same way that looking into a human face does. So, uh, this, this is a pretty serious problem that we've got. The problem of being human beings. And of course, as we all know, this, this grave problem is also a fantastic uh, opportunity. Because being born a human being is indeed a cause of great celebration. And so it's no wonder that we pop open a bottle of champagne when a child is born, or, or why we pass out cigars and, and want to have a party, because it's a cause for celebration. It's a joyful thing when a human being is born, because it's so fantastic uh, to be a human being and to see a human being born into this world. But it's fantastic exactly because being a human being is such a tremendous problem. And if you're willing to embrace the problem as it actually is, seeing it at its depth and accepting it without trying to avoid it or prevent it or fix it somehow, pretending it's not there, you know, distracting yourself as we so often do, if you are willing to face it at its depth and, and embrace it, then you can really appreciate what a celebration it is to be a human being. In uh, the Zen tradition, uh, which is what I have practiced for many years, uh, we have a lot of wonderful stories, and, and I often come to Spirit Rock uh, and tell Zen stories. And usually, all the Spirit Rockers laugh a lot when I tell these stories. But I, I don't want to tell any Zen stories tonight because it occurs to me that, that maybe these stories are a little bit misleading. Not that the stories themselves are, are misleading particularly, but because they come from a different, a radically different cultural matrix than ours, it's easy for us to misunderstand them and get the wrong impression. Because it often seems uh, that these Zen stories are telling us not to think, not to have theories, not to imagine who we are and who one another is, because all this is the cause of our suffering. And it's true that all this does cause us a lot of suffering, as well as joy. But the point is not that we're supposed to stop all this, because really we can't stop all this any more than we can stop being a human being. In fact, that is exactly what characterizes our humanness. The point is, can we find a measure of freedom within our human problem? Can we understand the nature of our thinking and our feeling? And can we find 
some peace and some ease within it instead of being buffeted around by it so much that we end up really being miserable and hurting ourselves and others as well. In other words, can we truly embrace and understand our nature rather than somehow avoid it or eliminate it? I would say that all of us in the room here pretty much take it for granted that that we're a person, each one here. We all take for granted, I'm a person. We all use the word I. And when we say the word I, we mean something by it. When I say I, I mean something by it. When you say I, you mean something by it. Maybe the same thing I mean, exactly the same thing I mean, or maybe something different I, I don't know, I can't tell. But we do mean something when we say that word. And, and we imagine that it's a natural thing to be, uh, it's obvious, you know, to be a person. And I think we think that elsewhere and in the past, 1,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, people were people, and they said, I, and they meant more or less by the word I what we mean by it. But I'm, I'm doubtful of this. I don't think uh, these things are so obvious and so clear as we imagine they are. And, and it may be that, that human history is the history of what the many generations of people have meant when they said the word I. My, my I and your I have been formed by this crazy postmodern world that we're all trying to live in. A world in which, uh, whether we think about it or not every day, we all know deeply within the essence of our I. A world in which we know that there's been tremendous destruction, war and atrocity, overwhelming. And in a world in which we know that that uh, war and atrocity continues. This is part of our I. A world in which we know that we are a party to the disappearance every day of many species. A world in which we can uh, wonder with some dread whether we're one of those species that will be disappearing. A a rational, scientific world in which human beings have become astoundingly sophisticated and powerful and, and are no longer capable of believing the old myths, the old gods, the jealous gods, the vengeful gods. We've outgrown that. That's part of our I, part of my I, part of your I. And we're living in a rational scientific age, radically different from the age that formed the I of people in the past. So, so when I say I, I'm not just talking about me, this one person. All, all of that is involved when I say I. And it's the same for you, too. 
A lot of people think that uh, in our scientific, rational world, we don't really need religion anymore because we no longer find it necessary to believe in a creator. We understand how the world was formed. And we don't have superstitions anymore, that we're beyond that. But it seems to me that we still really need uh, the practice of religion, and we still really need to have a religious life, because the basic human problem is still a big problem for us, and we still need to find a way, a path toward dealing with this problem. And until we do find a path, a way, and do really deal with this problem, uh, collectively and each one of us for ourselves, we're actually a little sick, a little, a little bit unwell. And sick people do foolish things. They say that uh, the Buddha conquered death. The deathless one is one of the epithets for the Buddha. The Buddha never died. Even though uh, it's, it's clearly uh, stated in the sutra that the Buddha's body became lifeless and was burned on a funeral pyre, it still says the Buddha didn't die. Instead, he entered Parinirvana, which is not the same as death. To enter, enter Parinirvana means to completely embrace the human problem. And because the Buddha could see and fully embrace the human problem without avoidance, without fooling around, without fooling himself, he is said to have conquered death, not to have died, but rather to have entered a realm of peace and joy. So the end of the Buddha's life uh, was not a, a tragedy or a cause for sorrow. It was a cause for joy and celebration. And uh, if, I don't know if you've ever seen a traditional depiction of the Buddha's Parinirvana, but uh, traditionally he's, he's depicted as a very large figure lying on his side uh, peacefully. And all around him uh, you see the, the various creatures. We were just in the Freer Gallery in Washington, D.C., and we saw a beautiful scroll like this. And uh, typically, uh, the animals, there are many animals always all around the Buddha, and they're all crying. And there are many monastics surrounding the Buddha, and they're crying too. But the bodhisattvas surrounding the Buddha are smiling joyfully and happy because they understand that the Buddha didn't die that he fully embraced the human problem and he entered a state of joy and peace. So in a way, we could say that in the Buddha's long life, nothing whatsoever really changed for him. The only difference between the first day of his life and the last was that he came to see things differently. He came to feel things differently. It was the same things, 
but he came to see them and feel them radically differently. And that made all the difference for his life. So, I think this is what we're all here trying to do, whatever our uh, initial intentions that brought us. In the end, we're all here, really, because we know, somehow, that we have this really grave human problem, and we know that we've got to do something about it, because no one avoids it. It catches up to us all eventually. So this is why we, we come here. We come to enter the silence, however uncomfortable it may make us feel sometimes. We come to enter the silence, to return to the silence of the heart. I think we all understand that the heart knows its nature. If only we could come close enough and become silent enough, we would feel it. So we're here, whatever we think we're doing here, to find a way to embrace a fully our human problem. The practice of meditation is to be faithful to the body, faithful to the breath, to return over and over again to the present moment of our sitting here, and then we extend it, returning to the present moment of our standing, of our walking, of our working, of our sleeping, of our waking, to come back to the silence of the heart and to train ourselves on our meditation cushion to know what that feels like. Through this practice of returning to the silence and extending that silence that's always at the bottom of our heart, we will be reforming our I. This I that we take for granted and we, and we think needs to be fixed or needs to be improved. We really need to understand what it is and how it's been formed. And our practice will reform our I from the inside. Because we've all been formed, for better or worse, by this postmodern Western society, which is brilliant in so many ways, and I think we all know this, absolutely dysfunctional in so many other ways. And we're all... Our, our eye has all, been, all of our eyes have been formed by this world. Even if you're from China, even if you're from India, it's the same because this is no longer a Western world, it's an international world. And there are benefits, and there's also a lot of suffering. So that's, that's why we have to practice, I think. We have to find a way to practice. So I want to switch gears now and talk about something else, which is really the same thing, actually. 
because uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to share with you a little bit about uh, this uh, book of mine that I'm going to be here with on uh, Saturday. Because it's really, uh, in a sense, uh, about uh, our human need for the, for the inner life, for the religious life. It needs to be, I think, uh, a high priority for all of us. So, uh, but but not everybody uh, likes religion, you know. Uh, religion ha- is, is a mixed bag. A lot of great things about it, and, and a lot of things about it that can seem uh, oppressive, or troublesome, or excessive. So, uh, what I've done in, in my book is uh, take the metaphor of Odysseus's journey home that's told by Homer in the Odyssey. And, I, and I've said, um, what would it be like if we understood this journey, this ancient journey, this ancient metaphor that survived all these thousands of years for a reason? Why did it survive? Why are we still interested in it? Maybe it's because it tells us something about our, our lives, our own lives, our inner lives. Maybe we're like Odysseus, having gone forth into this world to make our mark, we want to come home. And that that's a life's journey, to go forth and to come home. And what does it take to come home? And what is it like to come home? And what is home anyway? Can we read the Odyssey and and discover that? So that's what I do. I propose uh, a reading of the Odyssey and and a discussion of the spiritual path, not based on... uh, any religious text, but on the Odyssey. So, what I want to do in the time remaining for I'll read a few pages is to read a few pages uh, for you toward the beginning of the book, just to give you an idea about how I work with this. And uh, give you something to think about at the end. So this part is, is in, the, in the introduction, in the beginning of the book, before I uh, actually start talking about the Odyssey. And, and I want to read this part. If you want to find out about the Odyssey, I, I guess you'll have to come on Saturday or, or uh, read the book. <laughs> but this, this part, I think, maybe you'll be able to see that it kind of resonates with what I was saying in the beginning, and that's why I've chosen this part. And it's called The Sea of Stories. Our lives are full of stories. They're inundated by them. The day begins with the drama of the morning news and continues with stories we hear from friends, family members, co-workers, acquaintances. Popular songs regale us with stories. So do the movies, the internet, the newspaper. Almost all our institutions, from business to psychotherapy, from school to pulpit, organize their messages through story. And at night, we fall asleep to tales told in books, magazines, or television. And even our dreams weave our souls into the spell of story. So you'd think that by now we'd be tired of stories, that we would have heard it all. But somehow we never get tired of stories. Our appetite for them seems to increase rather than decrease. 
And while we're sitting here now, somewhere on the planet, there are probably millions of people right now working on creating new stories, processing and interpreting new stories. Because it's a huge industry all over the world. Stories that we will consume, discuss, fret about, dote over, talk about, forget, and remember. So this human obsession with stories is as old as language itself. Long before the movies, long before the novel, long before even the printing press, long before the written word, people told stories to one another. They they told them in verse. They sang them. They blurted them out loud during walking or working. They whispered them at night. They declaimed them from the holy places. People remembered and invented stories, sacred stories, profane stories, jokes, parables, fairy tales. And from childhood on, we always gravitate toward the great story. Read it again, read it again. Won't you read it one more time? If you've ever had a child or been a child, you know this one. Can you read it just once more? And now, in this postmodern age, we have all the stories from the past, plus all the new ones, not only from our own culture, but from every culture everywhere in the world. More stories every day than we could possibly absorb or pay attention to. Now, if you listen to stories uh, closely enough, critically enough over time, you begin to discern patterns in them. Boy meets girl. Loses girl, gets girl back or not. Pride leads to a fall. Within happiness lurk the seeds of tragedy. Power corrupts. The world wears down a noble character. Love suffocates. We need to break free. Or we're lonely. We need love. A hero overcomes an evil adversary. Every story has conflict and pressure, tension that builds to a release. The action rises, it crests, it falls. And stories end happily. They end sadly. They end in an open-ended way. And I suppose you could make a list of 10 or 20 or 50 different stories. And all, all the world stories would fit into those categories. And there was a Russian folklorist who many years ago actually did this and had a diagram of all, all possible stories. And maybe the predictability of stories is what makes them so satisfying. Even if we've heard it a thousand times before, we're waiting for that wonderful satisfaction that comes when the conclusion we're looking for finally comes around. And we love hearing again what we heard before for reassurance, because every story has a beginning and an end, a satisfying and predictable order. Stories reflect our hopes, our dreams, our fears. Just as we don't tire of looking at ourselves in the mirror, even though we're pretty sure what we're going to see, we never get tired of 
stories, no matter how repetitive that they may be. Through stories, we can experiment with our lives without all the bad consequences. Through stories, we share uh, the human drama of which our own life is but a small, reflective sliver. But stories can also be enormous distractions. Immersed in the latest soap opera, on television, in the newspaper, on the tabloids, or in the lives of our friends, we can avoid tending to what's real in our own life, to the truth and challenge of our living, or to the real horrors and the real joys of this world. Many centuries ago, the Buddha noticed with compelling acuity the way in which absorption in stories, especially our own personal stories, could, and usually did, function as as an avoidance mechanism to disastrous effect. Immersed in the passion of the tale, we forget who we we are, what we are, and heedless of our patterns of thought and behavior, we go on suffering, driven, and unexamined lives, hurting ourselves and others in the process. And this is really why the Buddha devised the doctrine that he called non-self or, or no-self, by which he didn't mean exactly that no sense of the subject exists, but rather that the self depicted in, in stories, in gossip and myth, and in our, in our own repeating tape loops, is not a true story. It's a distracting, destructive story. Because every story, when it hooks us into its plot line and shapes us, creates our eye through its narrative structure, gives us far too much that's not true and far too little that is true. So as an antidote to this human obsession with stories, the Buddha taught moment-by-moment attention to the elements of perceptual, emotional, and intellectual experience. He once said, in the seen, let there be only the seen, and in the heard, only the heard. In other words, let go of your story and pay attention to the actual facts of your life. And when you pay attention to these facts, the Buddha felt, without being swept away by the exciting plot line of your story, you'll be able to see what kinds of thoughts and deeds lead to suffering and trouble and what kinds of thoughts and deeds will lead to happiness. And when you see this clearly, you will choose to be happy. And yet, there's no denying stories. You can't get away from them. And it may be that this is one of the things about being human. Being human may be to tell your story and to listen to someone else's. But it would make a difference to know that a story is a story. They're not real in the way we think they are. Stories teach us something through their sounds, their shapes, their suggestions, their little-between-the-lines content that speaks to us through our souls rather than through our minds or even our hearts. So this is a really important thing, to know 
that my story, the story of my I, is not just mine, it's not just about me. It's really a wave rising up within the sea of stories. If I know that about my story and my many stories, because we all have more than one story, we all have many stories. If I know this truth about my own stories, then I can appreciate my story in a, in a wider and a more significant way. And maybe if I look at my stories in this way, they become larger. They become more mysterious. They become path instead of suffering. And then maybe I don't need to cling any longer to one particular version of my story as if it were the only true story, as if it actually defined me. My story of of victimization, my story of mediocrity or despair or confusion or boredom. Instead, we might begin to see our many stories as stories of humanness, as stories of being aliveness, as immense stories, whatever they are. Not just my own small, oppressive possession. And then maybe we can be inspired by our stories, inspired by what happens to us, and not be looking for something else to happen to us, or looking to to compare our story to someone else's. And then we can make use of our stories in a new way. So, uh, the idea then is, let's look at the story of Odysseus. Let's look at our own story, and let's look at the story of Odysseus, and let's see if we can expand and broaden the way that we look at our story. So, um, I'd like to suggest a little meditation exercise for everyone here. Not now, later. Before you go to bed. When you're, when you're, when you tonight, uh, when you leave here and you go home and you go to sleep, as you're falling asleep, tell yourself, as if, as if you were telling yourself a bedtime story, tell yourself the story of your life. And, and as you go through it, pause every now and then and say these words to yourself. Is that really true? And then tell a little more. And then say, and is that really true? And tell a little more. And see how you feel as you fall asleep. Okay, so I I, I didn't want to go through that little exercise now because I think it'll be better if you do it while you're half asleep and falling asleep. But also because I want to allow about ten minutes in case there's some question or conversation that we should be having. Uh, so I think we have about, about 10 minutes or so in case anybody has anything to say. Uh, yes, sir? Uh, I appreciate your comments about the need for an inner life or religious life. I've heard people uh, speak lately where they make a distinction between a religious life and a spiritual life. Kind of talking about religion in a negative term is... Uh, 
some kind of the superstition part and trying to separate that from the spiritual part. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts to share on that. Mm-hmm. Every, everybody heard that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you for speaking up. Um, yes, this is a contemporary distinction that, that people make. Uh, and like all these terms, uh, it's not entirely clear what we mean by these words. Uh, if, if we mean by uh, making that distinction that, um, that we can, uh, by being spiritual instead of religious, we can have more choice, more autonomy, and be less um, compelled. In other words, usually, maybe, maybe this is true. Maybe people, some people mean by the word spiritual um, less threatening more tame, more choice, more options, then it might not be so effective. Also, if people need mean by spiritual, forget about the world religions. We don't need them anymore. Then I think we're losing too much. So uh, I think uh, myself, I don't actually... I mean, I use the word spiritual, but I, I actually would rather use the word religious because to me... I think there's so much uh, important in, in our world's great, in, in all of our religious traditions, not only Buddhism, but the world's great religious traditions, so much in them of value uh, that we need to, uh, and sophistication and depth, that we, that we really need to take them up. Uh, but, and we need to take them up with, with seriousness and with guidance from people who know the traditions. But also, we need to take them up uh, without the oppression, and, and the, we need to be clear about the historical and psychological difficulties of the past, and not pretend that they're not there. So it's, a, it's more complicated for me than just, oh, we can be spiritual and not religious. Problem's over. I don't think it's that easy. I think it's actually more complicated than that. That's, that's just my view. So I'm sorry to make it so. I didn't have a, a pretty good, easy answer for you. Sorry. But that's what I really think. Yeah. I appreciate your answer. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Something else? Yes, sir. Following up on that, do you consider Buddhism to be a religion? Uh, well, what? Do, I, do I consider Buddhism to be a religion? Well, it's, it's also, then we have to ask, well, what is a religion? Uh, if you say a religion is a, an organization um, of, of, of people and practices and so on, in the center of which is belief in a supernatural being, Buddhism is not a religion. If you say that a religion is a set of beliefs and practices that evoke the deepest thing in the human heart, that a religion has rituals, observances, clergy, practices, scriptures, then, yeah, of course Buddhism is a religion. So it depends on what you, what you think. I mean, in Buddhism, Buddhism does offer the possibility, and probably other religions do as well, although it's an un- underdeveloped possibility. Here in the West, Buddhism has this possibility because exactly because it's a, it's a religion that comes plopped in the middle of nowhere, right? So we can do whatever we want. <laughs> so if, so, so uh, Buddhism appears as a religion that can be... Uh, can be offered to people without many of the religious dimensions to it. 
And so that's being done here. But, but in fact, uh, I, I would say myself, from my point of view, Buddhism is a religion. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Was that you? Yeah. Well, in terms of um, your story and sort of countering with the thought that is that really true? Yeah. I can do that with my mind. Yeah. But my feelings don't really follow. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I still feel sadness over my story even though my mind says it's not really true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did you hear that? She said that. Uh, so that's a good idea to, to look at your story and say it's not true. And she can understand that maybe it's not true. But that doesn't go for her feelings. She still feels sorrow over aspects of her story and so on. So what, what about that? Yes, of course. Uh, it's, more than, it's more than just a trick thought that we can have. You know, or, or, you know, you heard me say this, therefore now your whole life is different. I don't think so. You know? uh, no. Uh, it's a beginning. The, that's the beginning. The beginning is when we, we say to ourselves... Let's say, for argument's sake, that, that our story involves uh, within it a lot of sorrow and a lot of suffering. So we have to ask ourselves, is it necessary? Is this the only way for me to look at my life? Is this the only way to be with what's happened to me? Is, is, it, is it the case that, that one must feel sorrow, grief, being stuck, or whatever difficulties we have in relation to our story? Is that the only option? Or is there a way to reframe our story. And if we say, if we start from, from there, and we say, there must be a way, I want to find a way, then we're beginning a process that's deep and thorough, that will change the way we feel. Not in, a, in five minutes, not in coming to one Dharma talk, but, but yes, for sure. If you embark on a spiritual path, uh, with diligence and effort over time, you will confront the difficult emotions in your heart and you'll work with them and you'll come to understand them differently and things will change. But first you have to think that's possible. First you have to feel like it's possible and it's worth the effort that I may, might put into it. And then, you know, not, you don't have to make a lifetime commitment to it. You just have to say, let's try, test this out and let's try this and let's see what happens. And then keep going as you find that it, that it, that it makes a difference and that it works. So, um, you know, spiritual practice, there's only one place that you can start. And that's the place where you are. So you really have to be honest about what's going on with you, what you're feeling, what has happened, what your condition is. You really have to be willing to be almost brutally honest, no fooling around. This is what's really happening with me. These things happened. This is how I feel. This is my condition. And you really have to look deeply and, and seriously at your condition. And it's based on that condition, and your honest willingness to look at it, that you can begin to change. Slowly by slowly, uh, rolling up your sleeves and being determined to go forward with some sense that it's possible. So for anybody in the room that I'm directly speaking to, not, not just you, but probably more than one person, 
uh, I want to encourage you to, to, to really test out this proposition. Because I, I, I know for sure that it's not necessary for us to uh, suffer in the way that we're suffering. It, it, maybe it has been necessary up to now to bring us to this point where we're ready to bring peace to our lives. But it's not necessary for us to go on that way. And that's really the truth, but you have to find that out for yourself. Yeah. Yes, sir. standpoint, I understand that. I understand that every moment I'm a different person than uh, I was the, the previous moment, and that no description can really um, fully capture who I am, because you know, the next second I'm a different person. But it is the one thing that I hear that I find it that I, I uh, cannot access. I have heard of emptiness, and there have been times that I have, that I feel that I have experienced emptiness in meditation, and this is one of the few things that I uh-huh. feel so um, confused by. Yeah. Did you all hear what he said? No. Some, some didn't. He's really he's asking about the the teaching that he's heard a lot of of. No self, right? No, no I. He, he, this is, he really finds this hard to accept and, and deal with. Uh, in short, he said more than that. But, um, well, you're in luck. I can help you with that problem. Mostly I can't help anybody with anything. But with this problem, I can really help you. Um, forget about no self. That's just one way of saying something. And if it's a way of saying something that causes you confusion and doubt, don't worry about it. Really, the teaching is not saying that, this, that there is no self. It's really saying, you are mistaken about the nature of I and you and me. You're mistaken about the nature of it. It's not that, it's not that there's... Because no, you, you, know, you, you could just look at somebody who says uh, there's no self and you say, well... You say that, but I keep feeling that there is. So as far as I'm concerned, what can I say? There is a self. So, so okay. You, it's, you know, it's, it's not necessary to say there's no self to assert that as a proposition. There's no self. I don't care what you say. There's no self. No, no, it's not that. It's that we need to understand, and that's kind of what I was saying in the beginning. Our I is not what we think it is. Our I is something that's been formed by many, many things. And we do not understand the nature of our subjectivity. And because of that, we're suffering. Because of that, we're having a lot of problems, and we're causing a lot of problems for one another because we don't understand the nature of our subjectivity. So it's not a matter of saying our subjectivity doesn't exist. It's a matter of investigating and finding out what's the nature of our subjectivity. So forget about no self. That might not be a good... I actually think that's not such great terminology for Western people. I actually think it's not a skillful means for us. It's better to say, okay, it's not that there's no self, but what is the self? What is the self, actually and truly? What is it? Did I solve your problem? 
Oh, good. We love to be helpful. This is good. Helpful is good. We love it. It makes us feel good. It makes me feel good. So, anyway, good luck. I hope that you, the help will bear fruit. <laughs> Gee, that's the most good I've ever done, I think. And it's not very much. You know, he's, he didn't even say that. It, he said, maybe. You know. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I know. Darn. Darn. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could compare and contrast um, Zen Buddhism versus Vipassana Buddhism. Ah. Compare and contrast Zen Buddhism versus Vipassana. Well, now, uh, which Vipassana are you speaking about? And which, and which Zen Buddhism are you speaking about? Are you speaking about my version of Zen Buddhism or... My wife's version of Zen Buddhism, she's over there. And which Vipassana are you speaking about? Jackism or Josephism or Sharonism? So, so actually, you, you've given me a tremendously big job here to compare and contrast Vipassana and Zen. Um, uh, well, Vipassana is an American uh, Buddhist movement that uh, never existed uh, before it was created here in America. And the, the uh, incredibly brilliant and daring young people who started it, who were no longer young, <laughs> but were at the time, uh, uh, decided that it would be, uh, the best thing to do would be to, as much as possible, leave behind the traditional religious trappings of Theravada Buddhism, which was essentially what they were doing. So they did. Uh, the Zen uh, movement was established um, mostly by Japanese Zen teachers who came here and transmitted the whole thing. So Zen teachers often, not always, but often wear robes and have very traditional religious stuff. So that's a big difference. Uh, the meditation technique uh, is different to some extent, but not that. Essentially, I would say there's not so much difference. Um, I would say the major difference is that in Zen meditation halls, you can't bring your water bottle. <laughs> and, uh, and the fact that I come in here and I don't say to anybody, you can't have that water bottle shows how broad-minded I am <laughs> as a Zen person. <laughs> uh, I th- yeah, even cookies and tea in the meditation hall. It's astonishing. How can anybody get enlightened with a water bottle? Did you ever think? You know? Anybody ever see a picture of the Buddha with a water bottle? No. Or a cookie? Probably not. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, my, I, my uh, goal is to come to Spirit Rock one time and give a talk that is completely serious. <laughs> and then to take questions and give responses that are completely serious and nobody will crack a smile. 
And I actually plan to do that tonight. <laughs> and I want you to know that uh, I hardly ever am funny in Zen <laughs> retreats. But it's something about Spirit Rock that brings out my jokes. I don't know why. <laughs> Thank you for coming. I have a few last-minute announcements. And this is important. Next Monday, August 25th, Jack Cornfield will be back. And it says here, dinner will be served. Now, I don't know if that has to do with Jack being back or that's just a coincidence. But, but dinner will be served. Jack will be back. He's the cook. He's the cook. <laughs> it, would be, it would be a great help if people could assist our volunteers in tonight's cleanup. First, if everyone could help with moving their chairs to the side of the hall. And there's no more to that sentence. That's, that's it. It's not a complete sentence. First, if everyone could help with moving their chairs to the side of the hall, then, but doesn't say that. Okay, if you are able to stay longer to help and you're not blocking another car, we would certainly appreciate your help. Please check in with a volunteer or staff person wearing a white badge and ask how you can help. When you leave, if you are heading east to Fairfax, remember... They say this every week, right? Every single week they say this. So, so let's all say it together. One, two, three. Remember to turn right onto Sir Francis Drake, then a left through Woodacre. Okay. And then it says here in boldface, do not make a U-turn. Well, actually... Please, it says, please do not make a U-turn on Railroad Avenue. Please remember to look around the hall and in the foyer for items you brought with you. And with those inspiring words, (laughs) we conclude our evening's entertainment. Please come back to Spirit Rock next weekend and see Jack and and tell him I said hello. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Hi there. Thank you so much. Thank you. One quick question. What's yeah. your name mean? Is it Jitsu? It means elephant cave. Elephant cave.